The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. I want to mention a great resource for writers, and this month's sponsor, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. I'll expound later in the show, but the short version is this long-awaited book about the craft of creative writing from New York Times bestselling author Steve Almond sets out to debunk the well-meaning but misguided myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and most honest work. Pick up a copy today of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, wherever you buy books, more soon. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something special. Rainmaker FM. Okay, we are back with the writer files, and I am still your host, Kelvin Reed, here to take you on yet another tour of the habits, habitats, and beautiful brains of renowned writers. And this week, the former Slate staffer, ultimate data and word nerd, acclaimed author of Nabokov's favorite word is mauve, Ben Blatt, dropped in to talk with us about crunching the numbers of classic and modern literature, debunking famous writerly wisdom, and how prolific writers establish their literary fingerprint. Ben's a journalist, statistician, and author who takes a fun approach to data on pop culture topics as varied as Seinfeld, the Beatles, and baseball. The author studied applied mathematics at Harvard and has been published in the Wall Street Journal, Boston Globe, Deadspin, and many others. His most recent book, Nabokov's Favorite Word is Mauve, what the numbers reveal about the classics, bestsellers, and our own writing, brings big data to the literary canon, exploring the wealth of fun findings that remain hidden in the works of the world's greatest writers. NPR called the book a hell of a lot of fun. The Wall Street Journal, Enlightening, and the Boston Globe called it brilliant. In part one of this file, Ben and I discuss how a math nerd became a pop culture data hound, the challenges of turning thousands of books into big data to examine famous writing advice on Elmore Leonard's reversal in the exclamation point usage, why Nabokov used so many colors in his writing, and how a data journalist concocted experiments to debunk conventional wisdom about best-selling authors. The Writer Files is brought to you by the all-new Studio Press Sites, a turnkey solution that combines the ease of an all-in-one website builder with the flexible power of WordPress. It's perfect for authors, bloggers, podcasters, and affiliate marketers, as well as those selling physical products, digital downloads, and membership programs. If you're ready to take your WordPress site to the next level, see for yourself why over 200,000 website owners trust StudioPress. Go to rainmaker.fm slash studiopress now. That's rainmaker.fm slash studiopress. And if you're a fan of the writer files, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews as soon as they're published. All right. We are rolling once again on the writer files uh, today with an esteemed guest. Ben Blatt is joining us today, and he is a writer 
statistician, statistician, wow, I need to work on my diction, uh, former staff writer for Slate, um, who has uh, used data journalism with some kind of interesting topics, including uh, Seinfeld, The Beatles, Jeopardy, I guess that's Jeopardy, the TV show, um, and uh, some baseball-related paraphernalia. Welcome to the show, Ben. Hey, it's great talking with you. (laughs) So you've been published in Wall Street Journal, Boston Globe, Deadspin, and dozens of other places. Um, You studied applied mathematics, I understand? I did, yes. I'm an applied math nerd uh, by education, but really uh, I've always kind of been passionate about writing and books and a lot of other uh, kind of pop culture uh, stuff. And I've always kind of, you know, taken that applied math background and found a way to kind of combine that worldview with kind of the things I enjoy on a more regular basis. That's really, really cool and very fascinating. Um, and I think today, I mean, we're here to talk about your writing and your kind of your writing process. And I wanted to talk about, um, your latest book and you know, you can't, I, I seem to not be able to throw a rock without hitting one of your articles about, um, this fantastic book titled Nabokov's favorite word is mauve. Am I saying mauve correctly? I also say it mauve, although I've been corrected <laughs> both for mauve and Nabokov, uh, no matter how I try to. Pronounce it. Right. So but let me try that again. Let me try that again. Nabokov's favorite word is mauve. No, right. I, I'm <laughs> either totally... way it works for me. I'm totally going to get um, ousted for that. All right. Uh, anyway, um, so this fascinating book um, is, and I'll read the uh, subtitle, What the Numbers Reveal uh, About the Classics, Bestsellers. And um, it, it's pretty fascinating to, to when, you, when you start digging into this book. You, I guess you loaded thousands of books into various databases. I want to kind of ask you a little bit about, about that. Um, seeking to determine... Um, you know, kind of all these fascinating, um, I guess, just uh, ideas about conventional writing advice and um, kind of turn it on its head a little bit. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's the general premise. I think, you know, sort of the motivation, you know, as I said, um, you know, my education is kind of an applied math, but that's also just kind of how I view the world. And I kind of just like if anyone makes an argument in any sense, uh, I think I, like a lot of other people, kind of want to see the hard evidence. Um, and while I was doing some other kind of, you know, data-driven work, um, I was kind of also reading just general books on improving writing, such as Stephen King's On Writing. Yeah. Um, and he clearly had a lot of good advice on it, but every once in a while he'd say something like, you know, do not use LI adverbs instead of saying, uh, I quickly ran, say I sprinted. And so he's saying, don't use LI adverbs too often. Um, and just as like a data driven person, I want to know like if this is actually good advice and if this is actually advice he follows, we should be able to count, you know, all 5 million words Stephen King has written and see, (laughs) does he actually use LY adverbs at a rate less than other authors You know, as a Nobel prize winner, use less LY adverbs than a fan fiction author. Um, and you know, this is, you know, the, you do not use LY adverbs as opposed to some more kind of, um, subjective or kind of global writing advice that's a very you know precise uh piece of advice on the craft of writing and i just kind of felt that a lot of this stuff is very measurable and someone should really kind of go through the conventional wisdom and see if you know this advice falls and whether or not there's any kind of other just patterns that jump out of you when you treat a 
you know, a book, not just as a book, but also as kind of this wealth of, you know, information and wealth of data. Yeah, yeah. Earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers. Truth is the arrow, mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again. Author Steve Almond is a beloved professor at Harvard and Wesleyan and the acclaimed New York Times bestseller of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction. And in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed, where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. Well, it is cool and it's very well written. Congrats on the, uh, the work itself i can't imagine the amount of work that went into this book um but i want to you know kind of dig into it a little bit and so so you're taking you're using multiple databases right to to load all this information um to pull out these fa- fascinating um kind of uh, um studies and and how i mean how many hours and uh, months and years did it take you to actually put all of the text together? Um, so yeah, definitely a lot of the kind of work of the book was kind of like the messy legwork of, you know, just assembling what I wanted to look at and getting the data and all that. Yeah. Um, from the time I pitched it to the publisher to the point of publication was about two and a half years, but uh, more or less... Um, the bulk of the research and the kind of writing about it was done in one year. Um, and a lot of it is because, you know, if I say something like I want to make a claim like Hemingway uses this literary device at a certain rate, or I want to say, uh, you know, Tony Morrison uses this word at a certain rate, I want to make sure I include, you know, every single novel they've ever written. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in order to kind of, you know, make sure I'm being, uh, you know, as big picture as possible, I'm going through and making sure I have every single novel, whether it's kind of their most famous work or their most forgotten work in this database that I've kind of assembled to answer questions, uh, for the purposes of this type of research. Yeah. Yeah. Well, kudos. I mean, it is, it is, um, a lot of fun to read and dig. I mean, you could almost open to any chapter and just, um, you know, 
grab some some pretty fascinating information. Um, I think writers obviously uh, could benefit from this book, but I think anybody really would would kind of enjoy um, digging into the some of anybody maybe who's taken like a, a high school English class or um, you know because you turn some of these really pretty interesting uh, um, things on their head. So anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so much in here. I'm sure we could dig in and, and talk about it. And you've talked about these things at length. Um, but uh, I'm really curious to know. I mean, wh- one thought I had actually was that th- this might be very well paired with uh, Jody Archer's book recently. She wrote a book called How um, The Bestseller Code. Did you ever get a chance to look at that one? I have I have seen portions of that, yes. Yeah, yeah. be kind of interesting to, to compare the two because she did some of the, uh, or some similar kind of, um, big data, uh, crunching to kind of look at these, uh, bestsellers as you have, um, as well. But, um, yeah, let's move on to kind of like what you're working on now. Are you now moving to a similar project? Are you moving away from the, the, um, uh, the data journalism or are you going back to kind of what you know? Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, things that are set in stone, um, my next project will probably be something similar in terms of using data to look at, you know, something, whether it's TV or movies or writing or a specific genre of books. Um, this is definitely kind of, you know, how I kind of view things. And obviously this book is very focused on writing, um, which is a passion of mine. But as you kind of said, there are just still kind of a lot of general interesting behaviors that kind of pop out when you, examine any field closely enough for example um and this goes both to just writing advice and psychology uh elmer leonard who you know like wrote um uh you know what became 310 to yuma and justified and jackie brown yeah uh, had published an article that said you know do not use more than two or three exclamation points per hundred thousand words um and i kind of tracked his career usage of exclamation points and found out that before he gave that advice, he was using exclamation points at a close to kind of average number. But then as soon as he gave that advice and wrote <laughs> the New York Times, uh, he actually did start following his own advice. And, you know, he wrote a few books that had zero exclamation points in them. And yeah. kind of you know, just to kind of step aside, like one kind of very interesting insight of that is that whether it's writing or just, you know, life advice, you know, it's interesting to kind of quantify what people say to you and you like, you may take as a hard fact, but it's actually, um, you know, and you know, if you ever ask Elmer Leonard, if he were still alive, you know, whether or not he was aware he was doing that, I'm not even sure. So I think kind of <laughs> using data to get insights into how people think and behave is really, really interesting. And, you know, this book is focused on how people think and read in terms of words and numbers, Yeah. Uh, but kind of just those insights are kind of infinitely valuable to a lot of different fields. For sure. For sure. Have you gotten any, um, strongly uh worded uh letters from guys like james patterson at all or uh, i have not uh, you know, i guess from some you know james patterson is definitely a frequent uh topic in my book given that on a lot of metrics he's kind of off the charts in terms of usage of a few uh tropes or literary devices um i think you know not there's been uh, no pushback from huge authors although not necessarily involved. I think, um, like what I've found and I've been thankful is that I think for most people, even people who are kind of from a traditional English background, you know, even academic background, when they read the book 
they see that this is, you know, a celebration of writing and it's really looking at a lot of, you know, conventional wisdom, which is very good, but also kind of just like putting that in perspective of different authors and different books combined. Um, and I think a lot of the initial pushback is when, when people maybe read a quick summary of it or, you know, just an excerpt from it and kind of assume that this is, you know, a computer scientist who has never picked up a book <laughs> trying to, uh, you know, computer generate the perfect novel with meaning. Um, and that's right. not at all what it is. It's kind of using the questions that writers and readers have been asking, um, you know, in English classes and, you know, to each other, but just kind of like adding the twist of having some objective backing to it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that does come out in the writing. Um, I didn't mean to... Uh to infer that it had been just kind of boiled down to a uh, an algorithm for um, beating the system. Of course, uh, all of us would like to beat the system as writers, but um, no, that's not possible. Um, but yeah, no, I find so many so many things that you wrote about in um, Nabokov are fascinating. I think the the favorite word. Um, piece is also uh pretty cool to look at um you know when you look at writers like truman capote um versus you know ernest hemingway mark twain etc uh and of course um the one that one interesting fact that's that stands out that i didn't know that uh nabokov had synesthesia is that right yeah um, so yeah this was something that i was not um aware of you know i had read you know, some of his books and, you know, I'd studied him kind of briefly in English classes, you know, growing up. Um, and I was just doing this exercise where I was looking at words that are not necessarily the most used words because every author uses, you know, the or an and all the time. But looking at the words that authors use at kind of an extreme rate compared to other authors. Um, and Nabokov's, you know, statistically favorite word was mauve. And then I kind of went down the list and, you know, in the top 10 or top 20, there was just, you know, red, black, green, blue, all these colors. And I found it really strange. And also because, you know, having read him, there wasn't, you know, any book that was about, you know, a rainbow or a painter or anything really specific like that. So it was kind of, you know, throughout all of his works, he was using these words a lot. Um, and then I, you know, did more research and read his autobiography where he talks about having synesthesia. Um, and how different, you know, sounds he hears correspond to different colors in his brain. Hmm. And that kind of motivated looking at, you know, dozens and hundreds of other authors to see, you know, because if, Nabok if Nabokov had never written that he had synesthesia, you could almost, you know, just infer that just from the way he writes. Um, so, you know, kind of going through, for the most part, most authors' favorite words are kind of just emblematic of their style and how they kind of speak in their kind of like their written dialect. Um, but there's definitely some authors where you kind of get uh, this like inner look of like how they really perceive the world based on the words that they're kind of describing more than the average writer or average person would. Yeah, that's wild. Um, well, cool. Let's talk a little bit about your uh, productivity productivity specifically. So when you're working on a, like a bigger piece of data um, journalism and you know, I don't know if we're calling this book specifically data journalism, but it's got um, big data and sure. literature. Um, but when you're, you know, okay, so there's the piece where you're uh, taking all these um, manuscripts and you're putting them into what you said, uh, Python and or some natural language toolkit and a bunch of other tools that you were using. Um, so that, that's got to take up a big part of your uh, work day, right? 
Um, yeah. then, then are you also turning around and using kind of like the other part of your brand to concoct the, the, the kind of the, the theories and the stories um, around the data then that you're uh, looking at? Right. So it's kind of a give and take. And I think, you know, part of my evolution of how I've kind of worked on stuff, whether it's a, you know, one article or a larger thing like this is that, um, you know, I treat these as kind of natural experiments where I can't have influence over what the results are, um, whether, you know, what, which way the results go or how extreme they are. So a lot of it is just kind of coming up with questions and then, you know, answering those questions and then deciding, um, you know, if I, if I kind of do answer a question, I want to obviously include it, even if the results not, uh, surprising, but obviously the ones that are surprising end up being the focus for more questions and more attention in the book or more attention in articles. Um, so for this book in particular, um, the first chapter, which is on LY adverbs was kind of the first question I tackled. Um, and just, you know, I didn't know and really know, I don't think anyone on earth would have known cause no one had done this, hmm. whether or not, you know, LY adverbs was even consistent across authors and across books, you know, you wouldn't necessarily know until you did this, whether or not, you know, Hemingway uses about the same number of LY adverbs in all books or whether or not it changes drastically. Yeah. And for example, it turns out that it is pretty consistent and kind of luckily for the sake of this book, uh, most kind of things how, which deal with writing are consistent from, you know, page to page and book to book. Um, so when I'm doing this, I kind of have, you know, say I kind of have a sense, you know, I have one idea of how has kind of the complexity or reading level of best-selling books changed over the decades. I kind of have a theory in my head that it's probably gone in one direction because, you know, I've read popular books from 50 years ago and I've read, you know, James Patterson books from today and I kind of know intuitively how it goes, but I don't necessarily know when you step back and include, you know, all 600 books, whether or not this is a constant change, whether or not this is a drastic change or not. Um, so I just, you know, compile as much data, kind of checking it along the way. And then once I kind of find the answer, usually that answer will motivate five or six other questions. Um, and then the balance in terms of productivity is kind of um, doing these experiments, as I like to call them, and then writing about it. And then maybe as I'm writing about it, I realize that even though the result is very extreme, you know, that it's only something that takes a few pages to explain. Uh, and instead of kind of just, you know, dwelling on it and rambling on about it, I <laughs> either say this is either a short section that I thought would be longer or, you know, maybe there's like, you know, other questions and other caveats that this explanation and the data I have doesn't fully cover. I should go back and answer those questions that I predict kind of the reader or the critic will have and then go back and answer those and then um, kind of like, inter, you know, intertwining the uh, writing about it and the data part um, as I go along. Interesting. Interesting. Definitely some right brain and left brain stuff there, if that's a thing. Um, yes, definitely. Uh, <laughs> you know, and some, and sometimes like as feels like, Oh, that may be more difficult or more challenging, but I think kind of the fun part of this and for anyone else who writes kind of nonfiction, whether or not it's data driven or science or whatever, is that you kind of get a break up in your pace where, you know, you're writing a couple hours a day and then doing research for a few hours a day and then, you know, maybe relaxing by doing some reading that's relevant. But, um, you know, it's a different it's kind of a way of breaking up the, the work instead of just constantly focus on just, you know, writing narrative uh, hours and hours on end. 
Yeah, yeah. I've heard visual um, artists who are also writers say the same thing. And um, I always come back to Austin Kleon's phrase, uh, productive procrastination. So you can kind of like when the when the probably when the words aren't flowing the way you want them to, you can turn to the turn to the, um, you know, the data and the statistics and the analytical stuff to kind of rest your brain a little bit and then go back. Definitely. Thanks so much for joining us for this half of a tour of the writer's process. If you enjoy The Writer Files, please subscribe to the show and leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts to help other writers find us. And for more episodes or just to leave a comment or a question, you can always drop by writerfiles.fm and chat with me on Twitter at Kelton Reed. Cheers. Talk to you next week. Bye.